Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The latest must-read issued by the Pentagon last week is the first-ever National Defense Industrial Strategy. It acknowledges that America's manufacturing might isn't what it used to be and that it's not really up to the task of supporting great powers competition. We get one reaction now from the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University, Jerry McGinn. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be back with you, Tom. And in your tour of duty at the Pentagon, the industrial base was your area of specialization, fair? That's correct. That's correct. So you've been looking at this for a long time, and we've had other manufacturing and dib discussions before. Mm-hmm. Is this strategy just a admiring restatement of the problem, or is there some innovation in here? You know, I think there's a benefit in kind of um, this is the first of its kind to really kind of pull together all the threads of effort on the national of the industrial base and develop a strategy. A lot of like you said, a lot of things have been done previously, including when I was in government. And the, the one of the things I like about this strategy is it recognizes that it recognizes that you know these have been long term challenges that have developed over time and that it's going to take time to address it, and that we've gone after it in a number of different ways. And I also like our particularly like in this strategy that it recognizes the need for flexible acquisition, um, which um, I think is the most kind of fruitful thread for uh, implementation. And then finally, I really like the fact that it it recognizes the importance of allies and partners. It talks about that um, and um, how allies and partners fit within the overall industrial base, which is uh, really good to see. Right. I saw a story recently about a certain platform and a missile launching system that's made, I think, in Finland. Mm-hmm. And it takes a couple of years to put one of these together, and they're mm-hmm. not in enough supply now, and they can't ramp up a thing that takes two years to make real quickly. Mm -hmm. But yes, we do rely on European mostly suppliers mm-hmm. as much as U.S. That's right, and a lot of like either subcomponents or you know they a lot of those U.S. subsidiaries of foreign-owned companies, prime you know, systems like the Navy frigate, the uh, the the Bradley fighting vehicle. I mean, these are made in the U.S., but they're you know primed by non-U.S. companies technically. And the strategy does mention a lot of issues, including instability of procurement, mm-hmm. non-competitive practices, yep. fragility of sub-tier suppliers. Mm-hmm. An economy produces what's in demand. Right. And for those things where there is a mixed economic need, say castings and forgings, I think are mentioning in there, we mm-hmm. used have a lot more foundries in the United right. States. Is that because a lot of the commercial demand has been going overseas for so long for metal parts. Yeah, so, I mean, there's sort of, you know, given that the way the defense market is, it's a monopsony. You have you have, you have one customer, essentially, or a series of customers. And so, and the demand, you know, when you drop GDP, of the dependence of GDP for defense from five and a half to three from the Cold War to today, so a lot of the business for these things goes away. And then there's a lot of co- commercial items or kind of lower tier items that there's, that it is building the demand for those is in keeping those on shore is tough. And so there's been a lot of investment in that area, particularly in the last you know, half decade plus um, to try to rebuild kind of rare earth processing capacity for castings and forgings. And a lot of money has already gone into that. And this the strategy talks about that, which is great. But there's a lot, the, the more recently with response to Ukraine, you know, the, as you mentioned, the kind of the inability to produce things faster, that, that's where a lot of focus is going. And that's a big focus, as the strategy sets, is to increase the speed and scale of production. And that's where I think a lot can be done uh, going forward. Yes, to increase the speed and scale of production, though, takes multiple suppliers for the most part. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think this is what I've kind of said and written about recently is that you can, I think there's a lot the department can do to change um, behaviors in that way. It can do things like second sourcing. It can do, if possible, do dual awards of, of, of contracts to providers so that you have more supply, more kind of hot lines of producers. And you see that with the recent award on um, 155 munitions. They awarded nine companies. Two of them are non-U.S. companies. Um, so you're building more capacity. And that's one way that you can create more competition. But the challenge is, is if the demand's not there, it's much harder to do that. Right. And the report talks about that. Yep, exactly. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn. He's executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. And one of the points they make is there is limited visibility into international ally and partner requirements. That was a surprising finding. Yeah, I think what they're talking about there is, you know, the the foreign military sales system, which is a government to government system. You know, it's it's very opaque and there's a lot of kind of politics, you know, that's involved in it in terms of congressional notification and so on. So it's really hard to get a handle on what government, uh, foreign government needs are, you know, um, in advance. So it's getting more kind of um, signaling that um, is 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 one of the priorities uh, that's been identified. And a lot of what they say are actions, they have an action plan for each of these different areas. And I'm just looking at the one under resilient supply chains, incentivize industry, manage inventory and expand support for domestic, diversify, leverage data analytics. These are all kind of boilerplate prescriptions. This doesn't sound like there's a definite, it's a strategy, but it doesn't seem like a playbook yet. That's that's a fair point. The question is now, okay, what does this lead to, right? Does it lead to changes in acquisition practices that help to buy more analytics? You know, is there investment that's backing up these uh, these actions? That's only going to be visible when the FY25 budget request comes out in terms of investment and any kind of any specific policy or acquisition regulatory changes to address some of the actions there. And we've talked about this before, and this also talks about the regularity of demand signals to industry. So Mm -hmm. industry is incentivized to make the production investments it needs because it knows it has a steady demand. Right rotating inventories and so forth. Right. And that's, that's the key is, and this is where the the government has a power as the monopsonist um, that they can better exploit because getting demand, industry is only going to invest if they are specifically incentivized to do so through a contract action because there's no, um, there's no incentive in the market today for them to have excess capacity. They'll get killed by their shareholders for it. So, so we have to think about how do you do that as the government buys and that, that could be th- things like doing creating surge cleanse where the government pays a little bit more to have industry plan for building out excess capacity if the government tells them. So that way there's a bit more like several hundred thousand dollars for the planning, but you may be able to surge if needed in six months versus 18. So there are actions the government can take that can help create more of an incentive structure. And there's also some fine-grained tuning that would need to be done to these types of efforts because if you're turning out the ordinance, that's one thing. Right. But the platform to launch the ordinance, that's another thing. Right. No, that's fair. And one of the things that I've seen in what's going on with the replicator initiative that Kath Hicks, the deputy secretary, is leading. And this also, is the drone swarm yeah, exactly. idea. Yeah. Yep. And another program the Air Force is doing, they're looking to do simpler designs, You know, more commercially available systems, things that you can – 
So you don't have to build exquisitely capable systems that take long, have to be tested a lot more. Fine. So so they're trying to, to help short circuit kind of the um, production s- timeline by doing that. You don't do that with everything, right? But, you know, and so it's good to see kind of the department taking that approach. And I think there's, you know, more of that is, I think, coming down the pike. Yeah, if you're building a multiple missile simultaneous interceptor system, mm-hmm. you can't really simplify that. Right, right, but Maybe right. if you're making a shell, I don't know, there's some p- components you could value analyze out of it and turn right. five pieces into one casting or something. Yeah, or you could you could make a, frankly, you can simplify the production of the basic PGMs, you know, precision guided munitions, right? So you don't have to just hand make them essentially like the Javelin and so on in ways. And, and that's one of the things like the Air Force is investing in. So more of that will be important, particularly where you need things you need to scale. Yeah, there was an $80,000 television set at the Consumer Electronics Show, but probably in two years it'll be at Costco for, for, for 1500 Exactly. That's kind yeah. of the idea they need yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Very, very fair. So your general assessment, tell me if you agree with this, underlying this is a department that's worried. They mentioned being able to keep up with the pacing challenge. Yep. That's something you need to keep up with. Yeah. No, I, it, the department is, is very clearly worried. And one of the things that the uh, principal author of this was uh, Laura Taylor-Calais, who's the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Base Policy. One of the things she said yesterday at her rollout event was that, you know, the good thing about this, this is a very much a bipartisan effort. These are things that I saw when I was in government on both sides of the aisle. You know, there's a strong recognition that it's one of the few areas where we have bipartisan consensus that we are upside down in, in a lot of areas with respect to Chinese threats, and we have to address that. This is a very strong call to action, and uh, I welcome that. And I look forward to kind of working on the implementation because I think implementation is the key. I mean, money is part of it, you know, the more that invest, but a lot of that's out of control of the department. They can propose, but then Congress disposes. But how they buy, you know, the uh, practices they use to design, budget, produce, and contract for these systems are ways that we can speed up the process and get more things to the warfighter. Jerry McGinn is executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. As always, thanks so much. Uh, Great to be with you, Tom. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the Dib Report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. 
your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.